Well, good morning. Uh, Turning your Bibles to Matthew chapter 8 as we uh, continue on through the Gospel of Matthew. Matthew chapter 8 is where we'll be today. Have you uh, ever had the experience of signing up for something uh, that seems really good, uh, but then as time goes on, it's really uh, something that ends up being a lot more costly than you realized at first? Maybe uh, you went to a theme park. You're like, oh, great deal on tickets. And then you get there and the food is $90 for a bowl of mac and cheese, right? And that trip suddenly gets a lot more expensive. Maybe, maybe it's a timeshare deal, right? Shelby and I were uh, at Cabela's a couple weeks ago and there's this lady for 200 bucks right now. You can have a vacation anywhere, blah, 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 right? And you know that, okay, it's 200 now, but when you get there, what are all the extra fees going to be like? Maybe you've bought a car, you get a great deal on it, you drive it off the lot, and then for the next six months it's in the shop every other week, right? And that, that uh, $3,000 car has suddenly become a $10,000 car with all the repairs you put into it. Have you ever been in a situation like that where the cost of something is a lot more than you realized at first? Well, when a person starts to consider following Jesus, or, or when a person does follow Jesus, they may not realize that there is a cost to discipleship. There is a cost to discipleship. The Christian life is not just a profession of faith and everything stays the same. It is a costly journey of discipleship. And in this morning's text in Matthew's Gospel, we're going to see Jesus kindly but honestly address some misconceptions that those who have been listening to him and following him have about what being a disciple requires. These misconceptions that we'll see in the text, these misunderstandings, uh, are not just isolated to first century Palestine, but they're really quite relevant for us today. Let's read our text, Matthew 18, 18, uh, excuse me, Matthew 8, 18 through 22. Now when Jesus saw a crowd around him, he gave orders to go over to the other side. And a scribe came up and said to him, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes, the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Another of the disciples said to him, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, follow me and leave the dead to bury their dead. Let's ask for God's help as we come to his word. Our Lord and our God, we thank you for the gospel of Matthew. We thank you for the life of Christ, for the words of Christ that we see on the page of Scripture. Lord, as we come to your word today, we pray that Jesus' interactions with these two men would be pertinent to us. Lord, that you might show us if we have these same misunderstandings about discipleship, Lord, that you would make clear to us the cost of following Jesus. But Lord, at the same time, I pray that you would encourage our hearts with the great gain, the great reward, the great blessing that comes with that cost. Please, Lord, help me to proclaim your word faithfully, clearly, and helpfully to your people in a way that glorifies your name. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Now, we saw last week that all of Capernaum has come to Christ seeking, well, you know, figuratively speaking, all of Capernaum has come to Christ, right? Seeking healings. They've seen the miracles Jesus has performed, and they have brought their own sick, their own demon-possessed family and friends to Christ to be healed, 
And when we look at Matthew 18, we see that the amount of people is so great that it's now a crowd. That's how Matthew describes it. When Jesus saw a crowd around him as a result of all these healings. That's where our text begins this morning. Jesus is surrounded. There's a mass of people. And and in response to the crowd here in verse 18, Jesus does something unexpected, but something that we're actually going to see him do throughout the Gospels when there is a crowd. Uh, Jesus does not do what we might do in such a situation, right? We might think that Jesus would stay and evangelize this large audience, right? What a great opportunity for the gospel. And that is not what Jesus does at all. That is not what Jesus does at all. In response to the crowd, Matthew tells us that Jesus says, let's get out of here. He gives orders to depart to the other side of the Sea of Galilee. Now that Jesus has this massive group of people, he says, we need to, we need to go to the other side of the Sea of Galilee. Jesus' response to the crowd is to leave. A little odd, a little unexpected, and it might challenge the idea of Jesus that we have. Jesus was not a revival preacher. Jesus was not a revival preacher in the traditional American sense. Numbers were not what mattered to Jesus. It was true discipleship that mattered to Jesus. And Jesus was quite content with a very small group of true disciples, wasn't he? Whoever the Father gave him. Now, commentators give a number of different reasons why Jesus might have suddenly wanted to travel to the other side of the lake when this crowd appears. Now, maybe he just wanted to spend time with the 12, right, with his inner circle. Maybe this departure was kind of an invitation, a test to see who would come with him to the other side. Uh, maybe Jesus was just trying to escape the crowd so he could have some peace and quiet. The, the reality is, though, we're not told why Jesus leaves. We're not told why Jesus says we need to go to the other side of the sea. Of Galilee, and it's really not the important detail of this text. But what is clear from verse 18, and which is going to set the scene for the rest of our text, is that Jesus is getting ready to go to the other side of the Sea of Galilee by boat, and he's taking his disciples with him. And it's in that context, as Jesus is getting ready to leave the crowd behind, that two individuals approach him. One is a scribe, and the other a disciple. Both of them have an interest in coming with Christ. But both of these men are going to be, as we'll see, missing something important of their understanding of discipleship. They are going to uh, have an ignorance, we could say, about what the cost of discipleship is. Now let's start with the scribe first. In verse 19, Matthew writes, The scribe comes up to Jesus and, uh, and says to him, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. The first thing we're going to see here is the cost of discipleship in Humiliation. The cost of discipleship and humiliation. As Jesus prepares to cross over, a scribe comes out of the crowd and approaches Jesus. Now, who are the scribes? Uh, They're they're a character that we're going to see often in the book of Matthew. We see them in the rest of the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And they were important figures in Jewish society. Now, there's several thoughts as to what scribes actually did, but it seems to be the best understanding that scribes were a class of religious scholars. They not only copied the law of Moses over and over and over, but they were also probably experts in what the Torah said, in the, in the details, the fine details of Jewish law. Uh, some historical evidence suggests that the scribes were even included in the Jewish Supreme Court, the Sanhedrin. There were scribes there. Uh, they were referred to as teacher or rabbi, and the common people would often bow before the scribes as they would walk by. So in other words, the scribes were well-respected and notable figures in ancient Jewish society. Now, it is often in the Gospels that we find the scribes being portrayed as 
antagonistic towards Jesus, as, as opposing Jesus. But that's not always the case. As we see here, this scribe is certainly not antagonistic to Jesus. He's not opposing Christ. He's learned about Jesus. He's learned about Jesus' teaching and now approaches Jesus in order to speak with him about discipleship. And what is the first word that the scribe says to Jesus? He calls him teacher. He calls him teacher. This reveals the core idea of who the scribes thought Jesus was. Simply a teacher. A great teacher, absolutely. But ultimately a teacher like them. The scribe only really has an inkling of who Jesus is. This is not a title in Matthew's gospel that those who see Christ through the eyes of faith use to address him. We'll see that in a few verses. So the scribe comes to Christ and addresses him as teacher. One like himself, but greater. But don't make the mistake of thinking that this, uh, this statement from the scribe is disingenuine. That's not the case at all. He's very sincere in what he's saying. He's not playing games. He means what he says next when he says, I will follow you wherever you will go. I'll follow you wherever you will go. Now, in the context of the narrative, where's the scribe saying he's going to go with Christ? Across the Sea of Galilee, right? But he really takes it a step beyond that. And he says, I'll follow you anywhere and everywhere. Wherever you go, I'll be there. This is a pretty committed response, isn't it? Um, you know, if, if you or I were evangelizing somebody and they said, I'll follow Jesus wherever he goes, we'd say, well, that's awesome, right? That's the kind of response we're looking for. A-plus disciple right there. This guy could be an A-plus Christian. This is the kind of response we dream of, but we don't see Jesus rejoicing in the scribe's committed attitude, which is what we might expect. Again, Jesus doesn't go, you got it, you figured it out, come on, get in the boat. That's not what Jesus says. Again, Jesus defies our expectations here. He says something that, that on the surface almost seems a little stern, uh, something maybe a little confusing for us. But in reality, he's, he's being pretty kind to the scribe. Instead of commending the scribe, Jesus says to him, Foxes have holes, birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. What does that have to do with what the scribe just said, right? doesn't seem like there's a one-to-one -one connection there, but actually... Jesus' response is, is quite telling about the state of the scribe. Let's look at this a little deeper for a second. The first thing Jesus says is the foxes have holes, the birds of the air have nests. They have a home. They have a place to go. They have accommodations in this world. They're small animals. They're nothing significant. Their home is unglamorous. But they have something. They have somewhere. They have a home. But contrast that with how Jesus describes the Son of Man. The Son of Man, Jesus says, has nowhere to lay his head. Who is the Son of Man? It's, it's something that Jesus is obviously using to refer to himself. But what is the significance of this phrase, the Son of Man? To you and I, we may not understand, but to a first century Jew, it would have been an important and immediate connection they would have made in their mind. From Daniel chapter 7. Let's turn there briefly. Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. Daniel chapter 7, 13 and 14. Daniel is having a, a series of visions about what is to come in this chapter. 
and the chapters surrounding it. And in verses 13 and 14 of chapter 7, he's going to describe a particular figure. A particular figure. And here's what Daniel says. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. It's describing the kingdom, the reign of this one who is like a son of man. This is a prophecy about the final culmination of the kingdom of God. A prophecy about this messianic figure, this one like a son of man who's glorious, exalted. He has all authority. All nations serve him. It's hard to imagine a person in a greater position of power than this son of man, isn't there? This won't be the last time Jesus refers to himself this way. And so we'll learn more about this title as we go through Matthew's gospel. But for today, just notice the exaltation of the one who is like a son of man, the son of man in other words. That's who Jesus is saying he is. He's this figure here in Daniel chapter 7. But according to Jesus, the son of man who, who has all dominion, all authority, all kingdoms of the earth serve him, has nowhere to lay his head? That seems a little backwards, doesn't it? It seems backwards that the foxes would have a home, and yet this glorious son of man would have nothing? What is Jesus communicating here to the scribe? What is he trying to get across? Well, what he's saying to the scribe is really this. His ministry at this point in time, Jesus' earthly ministry was not one of exaltation, but one of humiliation. When I say that, I don't mean being embarrassed. That's how we think of the word. Really, that word means to be brought low. To be brought low. The Son of God existed in glory with the Father from eternity past, voluntarily took on humanity to redeem humans. And we see here the Son of Man, right? Both titles apply to Christ. The Son of Man is the glorious King who rules, who rules over all things. But what do we see in Matthew's Gospel? We see Jesus brought low. In humiliation, humbled. The Lord of glory born in a cattle stall in the backwoods of Judea? To be a carpenter's son? To be poor? This is lowly. This is humiliation. This is not worldly wisdom, but what the world sees as foolishness. And this is really what Jesus means when he says, The Son of Man will have no place to lay his head. He's describing the nature of his earthly ministry. As he and his disciples are going to leave behind their lives, their homes, their families, and travel throughout Judea and the surrounding area proclaiming the gospel. And what will the result of that be? It means they will be poor. They will not have financial security. They'll be viewed as beggars, nuisances. Their comfortable lives will be sacrificed. They will be brought low in the eyes of their, their uh, contemporaries. It'll also mean rejection. What does Jesus say? He says, a prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and in his own household. Jesus and his disciples would ultimately face rejection, mockery. Their reputations would be destroyed. They would not have a place to lay their heads. They would not have a welcome reception. And this is what discipleship would cost for this scribe. But he doesn't realize that. He's lived a very comfortable, respected, rich life. He thinks that following Jesus is just going to be another rung on the ladder in his career as a scribe. 
But Jesus says, no, 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 friend. You have it backwards. If you're going to follow me, the son of man, they will not be like that at all. If the son of man is going to have nothing, then why would you as his disciple have any more? Being a disciple of Jesus would result in this scribe losing his power, possessions, and prestige. The comfort and gain of this life would not be guaranteed to him. But the scribe doesn't understand that. He, right, he wants to follow Jesus, to learn from him, but he doesn't understand the cost, how it would take everything from him. He doesn't realize that discipleship is following in the footsteps of Christ who made himself nothing. But again, consider the kindness of Jesus in addressing this with the scribe. Jesus could have said, okay, sure, yeah, I mean, you, you say you got a commitment, we'll get in the boat, let's go. And then just over time, let the scribe figure out what he had gotten himself into. But that's not what Jesus does. Jesus is very honest with the scribe here, isn't he? He says, if you're not willing to pay the cost of being my disciple, you probably should bail now. There's no bait and switch with Jesus. Jesus is honest. It's not going to be easy being a disciple. Think for a minute about how that might affect our evangelism, right? I was talking with Joe this morning, and it occurred to me that I don't, I don't know if I've ever presented the gospel to somebody and then in the same conversation said to them, and by the way, if you do believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ, it's going to cost you a lot to be his disciple, right? I can't remember if I've ever said that to somebody. It kind of dawned on me today. Maybe you've had the similar realization right now as we're talking about it. But as we tell people about Christ, do we tell them about the cost? Or, or are we on accident, right, with good intentions, doing a bait and switch with them? Jesus doesn't do that. He's kind in his honesty. But as we look at the scribe, we have to ask ourselves some questions here. Have I considered the humiliation that being a disciple requires? Are you willing to be made lowly for the sake of discipleship to Christ? Uh, the, the natural course of our world is to seek more, 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 to gain, 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 right? To be more well-known, to have a better life, all those things. But have you considered that being a disciple to Christ may cost you all of that? It may cost you your reputation. It may uh, cost you approval in the eyes of your friends or family or coworkers. You may be called a closed-minded dinosaur, right? Our, our society, uh, in part, right, is becoming rapidly less um, accepting of historic Christian belief to the point that legal action may be pressed against you in the future. Who knows, right? But are you willing to be mocked or denigrated as a disciple? All the while being called to love the same ones who were taking that action against you. And, and we may say yes to that. After all, there's something um, kind of noble, right, about suffering and uh, being persecuted. That is a, a blessing in a, in a way. And other people may look upon us um, with awe, right, if we undergo something like that. But let's go a step deeper. Because that's actually not the hardest part of discipleship, being humiliated for the sake of Christ. It doesn't just require humiliation in our dealings with the world. No, it actually requires humiliation in our own hearts and lives, privately. You may be willing to give up material blessings of life as a disciple of Christ, but you realize that the kind of humiliation Jesus demands of his disciples extends to the way that you might treat your employees, your employer, your husband, your wife, your children. How all of a sudden 
your needs, biblically speaking, are to be put back here and the needs of others are to be put up here? Is that not the essence of what Christ did? He did not demand glory. He did not come to be served, but to serve. That's a lot more difficult in many circumstances than being insulted for the name of Christ. Are we willing to undergo that kind of humiliation in serving others and making ourselves lowly instead of expecting them to serve us? That sometimes can be a harder price to pay, and that's just ordinary discipleship. That's just the bottom level of what it means to be a disciple, right? And that's hard. We have to ask, have I counted the cost of discipleship in regards of how Jesus may call me to be lowly and humble and then make myself nothing, and are you willing to actually give that? And, and think about it for a second, because Jesus is not afraid to test that answer, right? He's not afraid to put your answer to the test. The first individual here, the scribe, needed to count the cost of discipleship in regards to humiliation and lowliness. But the second disciple that we see here needed to count the cost of discipleship in a different way, in detachment to this world. We see that in verses 21 through 22, the cost of discipleship and detachment. Jesus has finished his interaction with the scribe, and another person comes forward from the crowd. Matthew describes this person as a, a disciple, another of the disciples. And, and like the scribe, this man declares his intent uh, to follow Jesus and be his disciple. But like the scribe, there's something missing here, too. But notice the first word that the disciple uses to address Christ. It's different than the scribe. It's not teacher, but Lord. Lord. In Matthew's gospel, those who have genuine faith in Christ address him as Lord. That's like the little cue, the little flag that tells us, hey, this person really believes in Christ. They really are seeing him through the eyes of faith. So this, this guy here, he's a genuine disciple, right? He sees the authority, the power of Christ. He addresses him in the way that he should. That's not where the problem is. The problem is what the disciple says next. And he says, let me first go and bury my father. Right? In other words, I, I, I can't come with you across the lake yet. I need to go bury my father. Again, the man's faith in Christ is genuine. And what's wrong with this request? What's so bad about wanting to bury your father before following Jesus? Um, now, in order to understand why Jesus does not view this, as a favorable response, we need to understand what the disciple means here. Um, it may seem that he's referring to actually physically burying his father who's just passed away. Right? That, that's how it may read to us on the surface. Uh, but actually, there's better evidence that what he's saying there is um, you, he, he's using a cultural idiom. He's using an expression that means, let me go take care of the affairs of my father's household until he is dead. Right? So let me, go, let me go fulfill my family obligations until I don't have those obligations anymore. After all, in Jewish custom, a funeral followed death immediately. So if his father had physically died, he probably wouldn't be here with Jesus. He'd probably be there taking care of the burial. So this is better understood as taking care of family obligations, fulfilling responsibilities to the family. And um, in ancient Palestine and in the modern Middle East, your commitment to your family is extremely important. It may be the most important obligation in your life. It trumps nearly anything else. So when this disciple makes this request, think about what he's really saying. 
He's saying, okay, I want to follow you, but I need to fulfill my obligation to my family first. Again, that might sound noble. What's wrong with that? Don't we like family values? Yes, we should care about our family. But what's the essence of what he's saying, and who is he talking to? He's telling Jesus, I'm, I'm, I'm going to postpone my discipleship until the time is right. Yeah, I'll follow you, but I need to take care of some more important things first. Now, this could be days, this could be years before his obligations are fulfilled, right? Who knows? Really, this man wants to be a disciple of Christ, but on his own terms, in his own timing. Discipleship's good, but I've got these other more pressing matters to take care of. Maybe when things are better in the future, then this guy will get serious about learning more from Jesus. Then he'll really start taking discipleship seriously. This provides a little more context to Jesus' response. Jesus, in his response to the man, tells him two things. Both of them are commands. His response to the disciple is very different from his response to the scribe just a few moments before. The first thing Jesus says to this disciple in verse 22 is, follow me. He didn't say that to the scribe, did he? But he does to this disciple who addressed him as Lord. Follow me. This man's in a different category than the scribe. And Jesus deals with him differently. Jesus doesn't let this disciple off the hook. Uh, In a way, Jesus has laid claim to this man, and he's not about to let him go. But he reiterates the call of discipleship to him. Again, follow me. In the Greek, it's a present tense verb, so we could really kind of understand it to be, keep on following me, don't stop. Keep on following me. The disciples reminded of his calling that Jesus has on his life, the authority that Jesus has over him, and also the commitment of discipleship that Jesus has called him into. The scribe saw himself as a disciple, but Jesus did not. This man is seen by Jesus as a disciple. This is the result of sovereign grace, not the will of man like the scribe. The scribe's address to Christ came from his own desires, his own flesh, right? But this man's calling is from Christ directly, and Jesus deals with him accordingly. He calls him back, keep on following me. And then Jesus speaks bluntly and honestly about why this request to go bury his father is not compatible with discipleship in the sense of what Jesus demands. And we see that in the next part of the verse. Jesus says to him, follow me and leave the dead to bury their own dead. Now, to modern ears, that might sound pretty harsh and pretty insensitive, right? And again, that that may be because we misunderstand what the disciple is saying to begin with. Jesus is not saying "Your, your, your dad has passed away. Well, tough. Get in the boat. It's not what Jesus is saying at all. Again, I don't think Jesus is referring to an actual funeral here. That's where the disciple would have been if there was a funeral. But no, Jesus' response is making a statement about the particular perspective that the disciple has regarding the matters of earthly life. So let's look at Jesus' response a little more closely here as well. Leave the dead to bury their own dead. There's two different kinds of deadness that Jesus is referring to. After all, the physically dead cannot bury the physically dead, right? They're they're dead, right? Two different kinds of deadness. Spiritually, physically dead. The first dead, the first group of of the dead here in verse 22, is the spiritually dead. 
to those who are outside of the kingdom of God, to those who are outside the call to discipleship. The Bible is abundantly and universally clear. Spiritual deadness is the natural state of mankind. Now turn with me to Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 5. The Apostle Paul really could not be more clear uh, than he is here. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 5. Paul is describing the natural state of Christians before they were uh, regenerated, before they were born again. In other words, the natural state of man. And here's what Paul says about man's natural state. And you were asleep in the... No, it doesn't say asleep. You were comatose. No, you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that's now at work in the sons of disobedience among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were wet in our trespasses, dead, dead, made us alive together with Christ. So the natural state of man is dead. Man has a spiritual component from birth. We're all born with a, a soul, right? With a spirit. They're one and the same. But it does mean that that spiritual component of us is dead in the sense that it is without life or activity in relationship with God. It's dead. R.C. Sproul emphasizes this, uh, this point. He says, we are dead on arrival spiritually. Not just weak, not just ailing, not just critically ill or comatose. There is no spiritual heartbeat. No spiritual breathing, no spiritual brainwave activity. We are spiritually dead as a doornail. That's the condition in which we come into this world. And that is why regeneration actually must come before faith and repentance. Because a dead man cannot respond to an offer of life. So those outside the kingdom are spiritually dead. They are walking a path of spiritual deadness that will ultimately lead to a destination of eternal death. That's who Jesus is describing the first part of this response. In the second part here, in, in the context as he deals with this disciple, it refers to the physically dead. But it's not really the physically dead per se, right? Jesus is speaking figuratively to get a point across to this distracted disciple. The point is not about burying dead people. It is not about fulfilling responsibilities. It is about something broader than that. Jesus' point to the disciple is this. Spiritually dead people make the matters of this life, which is kind of referred to by that phrase, bury their dead, right? Spiritually dead people make the matters of this life the primary matters of importance. The end goal, the chief good, is this life, this world, and the things in it. And that's reflected in their use of time, talents, resources, thoughts, etc. Spiritually dead people do not have an eternal perspective. They have an earthly perspective. This earth, this life, this is all they live for, and what they view is most important. Maybe that's where some of you are at this morning. Maybe that's how you have been living. Jesus is essentially calling this disciple to have a spiritual and eternal perspective. In essence, he's saying to this, this disciple, you're not spiritually dead anymore. You've entered the kingdom of heaven. And so your perspective on things, disciple, must change. It must reflect that reality. His priorities are all out of whack, right? 
This disciple was placing his responsibility to the material matters of his earthly father's household above the heavenly matters of following the king of heaven. When Jesus says, follow me, that's the end of the discussion, right? Now, does this mean we should neglect earthly matters? Is Jesus telling this man to be unfaithful to his family? Should we ignore our responsibilities? Well, no. When we read elsewhere in Scripture, we see clearly that we are called to care for our families, to be diligent and good workers in our jobs, to look out for the needs of our neighbors, right, to provide for our children. Those physical parts of life in this world are important. We cannot neglect them, and to do so itself can be sin. What we have to understand, though, and what this disciple did not quite understand, is that these earthly matters, when we enter the kingdom of heaven, suddenly become subject to the discipleship of Christ. They are no longer king. They belong to the king. In essence, we are called to detach ourselves from these things, to leave them behind in our hearts, even while we engage in them and deal with them in our lives. Uh, the Apostle Paul writes something really interesting to this effect in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Uh, turn there with me briefly. 1 Corinthians chapter 7. We're looking at verse 29. 1 Corinthians chapter 7 in verse 29. First Corinthians 7 is about marriage, and that's kind of where Paul starts this little passage here, but he actually broadens it out to refer to life in general in this world. <clears throat> Here's what he says in verse 29. This is what I mean, brothers. The appointed time has grown very short. From now on, let those who have wives live as though they had none. Now that doesn't mean to just right, live like a bachelor again. Those who mourn as though they were not mourning, those who rejoice as though they were not rejoicing, and those who buy as though they had no goods, and those who deal with the world as though they had no dealings with the world, for the present form of this world is passing away. What does Paul mean by this? It seems like he's contradicting himself in the same sentence, right? How can we mourn as if we were not mourning or deal with the world as if we had no dealings with it? Well, think about what Paul's getting at. He says the appointed time is short. In other words, this, this world, everything in it, our relationships in it are temporary. They are passing away. They will come to an end, but that's not the end. There's more that comes after that. Christ is coming back, and when he does, our existence in this world is radically going to change. How should that affect our attachment to this world, do you think? The spiritually dead live in this world as if it was the, the end in and of itself, as if it was permanent. The things in it were of ultimate importance, like the disciple in our text. But for this disciple, for the one who's entered the kingdom of heaven, for you if you're a Christian, the things of this life must be viewed as subject to Christ. They must take a back seat to him. The disciple of Christ is called to have an eternal perspective on these things. Again, it doesn't mean we neglect earthly responsibilities. It doesn't mean we can't be thankful for a promotion at work or if the Lord blesses us, right? Those are all good things. But the point is, is that the main thing we are going after in this life? Earthly matters. That's the question. That's the realization this disciple in our text needed to come to. Something that Jesus calls him to and reminds him of. Something maybe you need to be reminded of this morning. I know I did as I was preparing for this message. You see, our discipleship to Christ, our salvation into the kingdom of heaven, is something that completely changes our relationship with the world and the things in it. 
They're no longer our final destination. We have something better. This disciple, he, he's a Christian, right? We could say he's, he's a genuine believer in Jesus. This isn't a question of salvation, but of sanctification. Okay, you don't need to count the world as lost to be saved. But once you've been justified, your relationship to the world is completely different. You have to ask, does your life reflect your profession of discipleship in terms of what you prioritize and, and do? Do you view this life as ultimate? And find yourself giving your time and energy to those things for their own sake, right? You kind of compartmentalize life where Jesus is over here, but then all this other stuff is over here, and Jesus is just another piece of the pie? Or is he the pie, and everything else is just an ingredient that, that kind of fits in there under his lordship and authority? I have found that the way a person views worship is actually quite indicative of how they understand their discipleship to Jesus. Um, worship is something God's worthy of, right? Something he commands of us. Something believers are instructed to do during the week privately, as well as on Sundays with the gathered church. Worship is something Paul describes, though, in Romans 12, 1 through 2, as a sacrifice. As a sacrifice. Something that costs us, in a way. You know, we need to ask ourselves sometimes, and this is not an easy question to ask, and I know I may step on some toes, right? Because we get, we get touchy about our practice of faith, but what does your worship life look like? What does it look like? Does worship end up being viewed in your heart as an inconvenience? Can't wait for church to be over so I can go do all these other fun things I have planned for the Lord's Day. Does the Lord's Day end up being a suggested activity? which can kind of just be casually put aside in order to do more entertaining things. And, and, and don't get me wrong here. I'm not talking primarily about the number of times you're in the building, right? But what about the heart? That's what we're asking about, right? If you, if you have to miss gathered worship or if you're at home and things are crazy and you don't get to do family worship with your, your family, does it bother you? That's really the question. Does it bother you that worship wasn't able to be what you were hoping it would be, that you weren't able to be there in person, right? Because there are circumstances that keep us home from church, right? That happens. But how much do we value worship in all of its different forms? That's a question for us, right? The way that we think about worship and approach worship actually can reveal a lot about our attachment to the world and the things in it. Distraction in our discipleship often appears in the way that we approach the worship of God. So Jesus calls his disciple to live in light of his heavenly citizenship. And he calls us to do the same. Follow me, Jesus says. We're called to leave this world behind in our attachment to it, even as we live in it. As the old hymn says, turn your eyes upon Jesus, look full in his wonderful face, and the things of earth grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. As we survey this text, as we see these two men and Jesus' responses to them, there's a number of points we can take away regarding the cost of discipleship to Christ. The first is that our justification costs us nothing. It costs us nothing, right? We are not declared righteous by surrendering our lives to Jesus and sacrificing for him. The cost of discipleship does not come in justification. Right? Jesus doesn't tell this disciple, hey, well, you're not a disciple yet until you get in the boat. This man's a disciple by faith alone, grace alone. But when we talk about sanctification, that's where the cost comes in. This text helps us to think clearly about justification and sanctification. One costs us nothing, the other costs us 
almost everything it may seem. Second, Jesus indicates quite clearly that being a disciple, entering through the narrow gate, changes our relationship to the world and our goals for life. The goal for us as a disciple cannot be earthly prestige and success, but rather we should expect and rejoice in being lowly, humble, maybe even ridiculed at times. The world is not our ultimate home. We are called to live in ways that reflect our heavenly citizenship. Third, Jesus indicates that the journey of discipleship, once we are saved, may very well cost us things we hold dear. He's honest with us about that. He's honest with you about that. Some of you are considering Christianity. You're learning more about Jesus and entertaining the thought of becoming a Christian. Praise God. But know that there is a cost. There is a cost on the other side. And Jesus calls us to leave things behind. Number four, finally, Jesus makes clear that discipleship to him in this life is not easy. And that suffering and self-denial is an integral part of what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. But brothers and sisters, don't miss this point. What we gain through discipleship to Christ is a far greater and more eternal value. I was reading Thomas Watson, his book, The Mischief of Sin, and he talks about how we may be afflicted. Right? We may suffer in this life. We may lose things that we hold dear. And what is our response to that? And you know, he says something great. He says, our prayer should not primarily be that God removes the affliction, but that God sanctifies the affliction to us. In other words, that God grows us to be more like Christ in that affliction. And I, from my own experience, and I'm sure from your own experience, find myself to be closest to the Lord and have most peace, most fellowship and communion with Him in trials than when things are just hunky-dory. Because where do trials turn our eyes to? Him. Him. As David says in Psalm 121, I turn my eyes to the hills. Where does my help come from? From the Lord who neither slumbers or sleeps. Trials do that to us. The cost of discipleship does that to us. As Jesus takes things from us, he gives us more of himself. And that is far better of a trade. Far better of a trade. And then we consider the end of our lives. What does Paul say in Romans 8? that we are heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him, in other words, following in his footsteps, that we may also be glorified with him. So brothers, sisters, are you willing to suffer the cost of discipleship for the sake of knowing Christ more and being glorified with him? That's a question worth considering, right? Whether you are a Christian and you have been for decades or whether you're learning more about Jesus and considering becoming his disciple. Wherever you're at spiritually, it's a question you will need an answer to sooner or later. So consider the cost of discipleship, but consider the riches of Christ. Let's pray as we come to the Lord's Supper. Our Lord and our God, you are so kind, so kind to be honest with us about what it costs to be your disciple. Lord, I pray that you would help us with any misunderstandings that we may have about the cost of following you from this text this morning. But Lord, I do pray that the cost, as great as it may seem, Lord, that you would put that in proper perspective when, with, with, with the spiritual riches that we gain in you. Lord, all of the treasures of heaven are hidden in you, Lord Jesus. And it is so worth following you, even in trials, even in difficulty, even as you take away 
things that we hold dear, whether that be possessions, relationships, our own pet sins, those things that you demand from us, Lord, you take for our good and you give us things that are far greater in yourself. So, Lord, would you help us to consider the cost, but to find that it is far worth it for the sake of knowing Christ. May we count all things as loss for that, Lord, to know you more. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.